Dear Father, we are thankful for this incredible study that we've been able to go through these past six months. We're thankful that it's uh, coming to an end, though I'm sure we'd like to start right over again at the beginning. Uh, the material has been weighty. Uh, it's definitely been heavy the last few weeks and we'll continue it tonight. We pray for grace as we attempt to understand exactly what happened and what it was that paid the penalty for our sins. We thank you so much for the death of your son. We know that it worked, that it set us free from the penalty of sin, and that it sets us free from the power of sin. We thank you that it will bring us into uh, eternal glory with you where we will be separated from the presence of sin. We thank you so much for the death of your son and the life that it brings us. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we finally come to the crucifixion, to the death of Christ, the, well, I would say climax of the Gospels, but really they climax right at the end. This brings us right up to the climax of the Gospels, but it does get us to his purpose for being born, his purpose for being the incarnate, fully human, perfect humanity, and fully God, undiminished in his divinity. The reason why he came for this is explained tonight in the crucifixion of Christ. We are in the tenth part, and yes, you can see that we have two more. We're going to do both of them next week. Uh, if we have time to get to the sequels, otherwise, you'll just have to ask Arnold how to interpret Acts and how to interpret Hebrews based on this interpretation of the Gospels. I hope we can get to it. It shouldn't take too long next week. But we start now with the crucifixion to remind you where we left off. Jesus has just been kept up all night after his agony in Gethsemane, after the last supper that he enjoyed with his disciples, after the six trials that he underwent, three religious trials and three civil trials. All of them were unfair. All of them were not done legally. In fact, he wasn't even condemned of a crime for which he was sentenced to death, but he was sentenced to death based on mob rule. And the mob likely didn't even want this, but it was by the seduction of the Jewish leaders in the mob who convinced the crowd to choose to have Barabbas released rather than to have Christ released. And so Christ is going to the cross and he is going to hang between two criminals. The two criminals who were guilty of the same thing as Barabbas and probably worked together with him in their insurrection. Jesus is literally taking the place of a sinner. This procession to Calvary, the crucifixion, the death of Christ, and the burial of Christ takes place in 30 stages. We're going to go through all of these stages rather quickly because we also want to spend quite a bit of time talking about the implications of his death. What exactly did it accomplish? So we begin with his move from Calvary, or his move from the, uh, the palace of Pilate to the cross. Now he's just been scourged by the Romans. Pilate tried to have the Jews satisfied 
their bloodlust satisfied by having Jesus whipped, his skin torn, his muscle torn down to the bone. This didn't satisfy him. They want him crucified. So at this point, they would attach him, or they would hand him a cross, which he would have to carry to the place where he would finally be crucified. Now these crosses in the Roman world, there were four different kinds of crosses used. One looked like a telephone pole, where they would nail your hands above your head and your feet below you, and then the inscription of your crime would be hung above your head. There was another one that looked like an uppercase X. This was the kind of cross that Peter was hung on. There was no room for an inscription on these, and Peter was even hung upside down. The hands and the feet would be stretched uh, so that the bones would be pulled out of their sockets before they would be crucified. Another one looked like an uppercase T, where the head was above the pole and the arms were stretched out on the crossbeam. And then another one, the type that Christ was crucified on, looks like a lowercase t, where the arms are stretched out on the crossbeam, and then the crossbeam is lifted up and attached onto the pole, which his legs have been nailed to, stretching his body and pulling it out of joint. But the cross is given to Jesus, disassembled, and he carries it to Golgotha. Now we see his fleshly weakness at this point. Jesus is operating by the Spirit, but his flesh is weak. He's been scourged. He's been up all night. He's been mocked. He's been betrayed. And though we don't know if he could have carried the cross physically to Golgotha himself, the Romans and the Jews notice that his body is weak. And they conscript a man named Simon from Cyrene to help him carry the cross. This man, uh, Simon, was probably in Jerusalem that morning to bring his Passover sacrifice to the temple so that he and his family could enjoy the Passover Seder that evening. Little did he know that he would walk the true Passover sacrifice to the place where he would be slaughtered. Now, Simon had two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and Rufus appears as one of the church leaders in Rome. The Roman church sprung up without an apostle. The apostles later went there and identified this church as a genuine Christian church. But Rufus, the son of Simon, was probably one, if not Simon himself, who brought Christianity to Rome. So by this aiding of Christ in the cross, helping him to carry the cross, seeing what Christ underwent, this man, Simon, likely came to faith. While Jesus is being led out of the city beyond the wall, so he could be crucified outside of the city, as prophecy foretold, there were lamenters wailing for him. Now these were not wailing for him because they pitied him, but because this was a Jewish tradition and still is today. Professional wailers are brought out for funerals. We saw this in Nine when a widow's son was, uh, had died. There were professional wailers there. They were mourning, especially in this case, 
because it was the Romans bringing a Jew to his execution, not because it was Jesus the Messiah who was being executed. Jesus calls these women daughters of Jerusalem, so we know that these are not the women who followed him from Galilee. When these women cry out, he tells them not to cry for him, but to cry for themselves and for their children. He's talking about the curse that they have brought upon themselves for the rejection of him as the Messiah, which began in Matthew 12 with the Jewish leaders and ended when they called to have him crucified and to have his blood upon themselves and on their children. And so the judgment was postponed 40 years to their children's generation so that these parents and their children would die under the curse of rejecting the Messiah in A.D. 70. Now Golgotha was outside of the old city wall. The city wall now includes Golgotha, but he was led just outside the wall, not far from the temple, not far from the palace of Pilate or from the palace of Herod, which was across the city on the western side. Golgotha is on the western side of the temple or of the city, and it's right by the western gate. So everyone entering from the western gate to bring their Passover sacrifice to the temple that day would walk past Jesus and the two criminals who were crucified beside him. Golgotha gets its name from the Aramaic word, the place of the skull. There are legends that it looks like a skull, and that's where it got its name. But this seems to be a, if this is true, it seems to be something that was recognized after it was named. But this place, Golgotha, was usually used for crucifixions. It got its name, the place of skulls, because it was familiar to the Jews as the place where the Romans crucified people. So Jesus' crucifixion was not the first one to take place there. Once he arrived, the Roman soldiers offered him gall mixed with myrrh, a solution of wine. Now this was not sour wine, this would have been regular wine. And the purpose of this gall and myrrh was to sedate him. Usually it is the exhaustion of the pain that ends up killing the people on the cross. Piercing their wrists and piercing their ankles and heels is not what kills them, but rather asphyxiation. They have to be able to lift themselves up to breathe. So below their feet, they attach a little block of wood so that they can get enough leverage to lift themselves. If they become exhausted because of the pain, they can no longer lift themselves and they die of asphyxiation. So to prolong their death, to prolong the time that they're on the cross, to make sport of it, they would give them a sedative. But Jesus refuses this sedative so that he bears the full weight of the pain of sin. He does so in his right mind, fully understanding what's going on at all times. The crucifixion lasted six hours. From the time Jesus was hanged on the cross to the time they take him down, was from 9 a.m. in the morning to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The first three hours, he undergoes torment by people. But in his last three hours, he undergoes the wrath of God, which justly satisfies his holy law, which uh, satisfies the penalty for sin. 
the process of hanging him, as I mentioned earlier, was to first, while they were on the ground, nail him to the cross. They would nail him first to the cross beam, and then they would nail his feet to the pole, and then they would stretch his body and attach the cross beam as high up on the pole as they could. This would pull his ligaments out of joint, satisfying the prophecy of Matthew 22, that his bones would be out of joint. Once they hoist the cross up and they plant it firmly in the ground, Jesus prays. His first and his last statements from the cross are both prayers to God. And he prays for the ignorant. He prays that God forgives them because they do not know what they're doing. This is probably a prayer for the Roman soldiers specifically, which would extend out perhaps to the Jews who were persuaded by the high priests or the chief priests and the Pharisees to have him crucified. They didn't understand what they were doing, but Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, Herod, they understood what they were doing. They understood that they were putting an innocent man to death, and so not that salvation was not available to them, but Jesus from the cross prayed for those who were at the moment hanging him on the cross because they knew not what they were doing. Now, unlike portraits and paintings that we've seen, Jesus didn't have even so much as a loincloth when he was hanged on the cross. They would have taken off all of his garments before nailing him and hanging him. And after the job was done of hanging him, it is a waiting game. And so one of the first things that they do is they part the garments. Now, four Roman soldiers are assigned to every crucifixion but the average Jewish male wears five garments. He would wear a head covering, sandals, an undergarment, an overgarment, and a robe, especially at this time of year, uh, at the Passover, which happened in the spring. The first four articles of clothing are rather inexpensive. They were easily parted between the four, but the last piece, the robe, appears more expensive than the average robe, because it had no seams. They couldn't divide it evenly and keep the material even. If they divided it, it would ruin the material. So because of its value, they couldn't just give it to one person as their take. They cast lots for it. And this, once again, fulfilled prophecy that Jesus, or that the Messiah's garments would be gambled for. Now, as mentioned earlier, the crimes for which the person is being crucified are written on a placard and placed either above on the T-crosses or below on the full cross. Pilate wrote the charges that Jesus was brought up on, but since Jesus wasn't actually brought up on a charge, the charge looked more like a title. The charge read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This displeased the chief priests quite a bit, but it was the chief priests who forced Pilate's hand by persuading the mob through their envy and jealousy 
to have Jesus crucified, despite the fact that Pilate tried four times to have Jesus set free because he was innocent. Pilate is not very sympathetic to these chief priests. And when they tell him, don't write that, because that makes it look like he is the king of the Jews, Pilate says, I've written what I have written. In other words, scram, this is what it says. Now this was not just written in one language, this was written in Hebrew for the Jews. This was written in Latin for the Romans, and it was written in Greek for the rest of those uh, who would have witnessed this, especially around the Passover, where the Jews from the diaspora would be there uh, in order to celebrate the Passover. And all of them that passed could read this inscription above his head, and that it said, Jesus of Nazareth is king of the Jews. Beside him on the cross were two criminals. These were criminals who were called robbers, but this isn't the best translation of the Greek term. These were malefactors. These were simply criminals. The crime that they appeared to have been convicted for was insurrection. The same thing Barabbas was convicted for, and they likely were planned to be executed that morning anyways. This was an execution that the Romans would have undertaken without uh, the interest or the participation of the Jews. But since Christ has been made such a big show the night before and in that morning, many of the Jews are present for this crucifixion as well. And this fulfills prophecy as well, that he would be counted among criminals. Now during these three hours, he is mocked on the cross. We remember during his trials, he was mocked four times already. He's mocked four more times while he is on the cross from four different groups of people. And these mockeries specifically mock his claims to be the Messiah and instruct him to prove his messiahship by coming down off the cross. Once again, we see Satan influencing people to do his will, to keep Jesus by any means from satisfying the penalty of sin on the cross. This is Satan's last effort, just as he had tried during the temptations of Christ in the wilderness to have Jesus prove his messiahship by disqualifying himself from the messiahship by disobeying God. The first group of people are simple passers-by. They are going to the temple or departing from the temple. Actually, they're going to the temple. They were departing the temple. They couldn't be enjoying the Passover that evening. These passers-by would be coming into the temple with their sacrifices. And interestingly enough, their mockery to Christ has nothing to do with the inscription written above his head. They mock him because he claimed that he could destroy the temple in three days. This was the charge that the Jews tried to bring against him the night before and failed. In Jewish writings, we see evidence that 40 days before Jesus was hanged on the cross, a charge went out to all the Jews to bring evidence for or against Christ, or for or against Jesus, 
whether or not these charges were true or someone to bring a defense against him. Remember, trials were not allowed to be held where there was no advocate for the other party. They were trying to find a way to make this a legal trial so that he could be condemned for a charge that would have him sentenced to death both under Jewish and Roman law. So these people, when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they expected that that charge had been brought against him, that somehow this had succeeded. So they already knew, seeing him for the first time that morning, why they supposed he was being put to death. The Jewish leaders who were standing around the cross were telling Jesus that if he were the Messiah, prove it to them by coming down off the cross. Prove it to them by saving himself. The Roman guards, perhaps hearing this, said the same exact thing. And finally, the criminals, both of them, next to it, followed suit from the Jewish leaders and taunted Jesus to come down off the cross. One of them, however, seems to have a change of heart. He realizes, while the second one continues taunting Jesus to get down off the cross, he realizes that they are all three up there under the same charges. But the two, who were supposed to be crucified next to Barabbas, their leader, were guilty. But Jesus was innocent. And so the second criminal asks the first, do you even fear God? He recognizes the innocence of this man, and he tells him, or he chides him for mocking Jesus. And then he tells Jesus to save him when he comes in his kingdom, to remember him when he comes in his kingdom. While this man is was just mocking Jesus that he was about to die, while this man mentioned that this man was dying for a crime he was innocent of, he still asks Jesus to save him, while everyone else is telling Jesus to save himself and disqualify himself from being the Messiah. This criminal recognizes why Jesus has come and asks for him to save him. He asks Jesus to save him in the kingdom. He believes that Jesus, in his kingdom, he believes that the kingdom belongs to Jesus. He believes that he is the Messiah. And Jesus responds to him that, he is not going to have to wait until the kingdom. The kingdom had been postponed because of the rejection by the Jews. In fact, this kingdom has still not been reoffered to Israel. This man would not have to wait 2,000 plus years. Jesus told him, surely today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was the section of Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom, where before the cross, those who died as believers, the righteous dead, would go and await Christ's work on the cross. This man may have been one of the very last men to enter into paradise before Jesus emptied it, bringing them with him back to the Father. The last three hours that Jesus spent on the cross are no longer the wrath of men. In fact, we'll see that men were even stopped from being able to mock him too much or to do anything because God casts darkness over the whole scene for three hours. 
but in this time we see the completion of Christ's work here on earth. It begins by Jesus finishing his responsibilities under the law of Moses to be responsible for the care of his mother, responsible for the care of his parents. Jesus, seeing his mother and John the disciple at the foot of the cross, tells his mother Mary, referring to John, behold your son. And he tells John, referring to Mary, behold your mother. Jesus places the care of his mother in the hands of John, his first cousin and his closest friend. And it says that John took Mary into his house from that day forward. John took the responsibility upon himself, and Jesus had fulfilled every requirement under the Mosaic law. He was perfectly faithful to it. He was a perfect and spotless sacrifice. And then the wrath of God began. Darkness was cast over the entire land. And this darkness wasn't just over Jerusalem or over Israel. It appears that the light of the sun itself failed, just like it will right before the coming of the Messiah in his kingdom. There are reports from Turkey by a man named Phlegon of Trolleys, if I remember correctly, who says that this was not even a solar eclipse. This was far beyond a solar eclipse. There was a man down in Egypt named Dionysus, who was a scientist, who noted that it appeared that the lights went off in the whole earth. And there was another man named Diogenes, I believe, who was also down in Egypt. And he made a very interesting statement. He was a historian. And he said, either the deity himself is suffering, or he sympathizes with one who is. These were unbelievers, but interestingly enough, he recognized the supernatural event that was taking place all the way down in Egypt. And he saw that this is something that at least concerned God. Little did he know that both statements were true. Jesus, the divine God-man, at that moment was suffering. And God the Father and the Holy Spirit sympathized with him. And then Jesus makes another statement from the cross. This is in Aramaic. He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is a very interesting statement because this is the very first time. This is the only time in the Gospels, where Jesus ever refers to God as my God instead of Father or my Father. Jesus has just taken on the full weight of sin. Jesus has taken on the separation that we endured at the fall. Jesus has become a sympathetic Savior because he has borne the full weight. Jesus had two natures has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. His divine nature is unchangeable and cannot be separated from God. 
but his human nature for these three hours was separated from God. And that was the most terrible torment that he could endure. At the end of these three hours, he makes another statement. He says, I thirst. This has an interesting parallel in a story that he told about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Now this rich man was in Hades, where the absence of God created a dire thirst that could not be satisfied. Jesus has spent three hours separated in his human soul from God, and the result in his physical body was thirst. Some of the Roman guards were going to give him some sour wine or some vinegar. And those who were standing around who had heard him cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, told this Roman guard to wait because they wanted to see if Elijah would really come to rescue him. Those who were watching didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand that Jesus had cried out to God. They thought he used Elijah's shorter name, asking Elijah to come and rescue him. They thought Jesus was giving in to their taunting and giving in to their mocking. But instead, he was paying the penalty for their sins. Finally, these Roman guards do give Jesus some of the vinegar from a sponge made out of hyssop. And this loosed Jesus' tongue just enough so he could clearly stay, say one of the most important statements in all of Scripture. That was the Greek word to telestai. This is an accounting term, meaning paid in full. This would be placed as a stamp on deeds that were due, accounts payable. Once it was paid, they would mark it to telestai. The price had been fully satisfied. Jesus Christ, in his taking on of the sin of man, in his dying in his spirit by being separated from God, paid the price fully for our sins. Once he said this, he once again prays to God. But this time, we see that his relationship with God as the Son in his flesh has been restored. He says, Father, unto you I commend my spirit. Once again, he addresses God as Father. The suffering in his spirit has been completed. The suffering in his body has been completed. He is going to give up his spirit now. And notice that no one has taken his life from him. Though they've scourged him, they've hanged him, even undergoing the wrath of God. It is not until he offers himself up as a willing sacrifice and dismisses his spirit to God the Father. Now this also is a fulfillment of prophecy, where a righteous man 
would commend his spirit to God for safekeeping. He is dismissing his spirit to God and trusting that God would raise him again from the dead. And God surely would. Now this was typified in many Old Testament imagery, a lot of Old Testament imagery. What Jesus Christ did on the cross fully satisfied all of God's prophecies for the first coming. He satisfied the type of the Melchizedekian priesthood, where a priestly offering would be made to God. In Hebrews, we learn that this is a perfect sacrifice because it was made on a perfect basis with perfect blood. Jesus Christ made this offering to God. He serves as the Melchizedekian priesthood, not in the Aaronic priesthood. This is also the antitype to the type of Passover, where we see salvation coming through blood. Now, there were two steps at the Passover event in Exodus 12, before Israel left Egypt. First, they had to slaughter the lamb, a sacrifice of blood. Through this sacrifice, their oldest sons and each family would be spared. But not just because the lamb was sacrificed, but because the blood was applied to their own door. Jesus fulfills perfectly this Passover type. He was the blood that was shed for the salvation of the world. And for those who take that blood and apply it to their doorpost, they would be saved through that blood. They would be spared the wrath of God. This also fulfills the type of the brazen altar in the temple. It's specifically fulfilled through the cross. The brazen altar was the place where the sacrifice, where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. They would be sacrificed outside the camp, and the blood would be brought in and sprinkled on the brazen altar. And Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. It fulfills also the type of the laver. The laver was a large wash basin in the temple by which the priests would undergo ritual cleaning in order to be clean to perform the sacrifices. Jesus Christ in his blood offers this cleansing. This is a family cleansing. Cleansing not that brings one into the family of God, but cleanses one once they are in the family. Just as the high priests were expected to be believers, who were not having themselves cleaned once and for all for the first time, but having their sins washed away. This was the type of the labor that Jesus fulfilled. He fulfilled the type of the blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice, which would make it possible for God to declare someone justified. Because Jesus fulfilled the just requirement of God. Because Jesus is just in his sacrifice, we can be declared just. He fulfills the type of the Yom Kippur goats. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were selected. One would be killed, his blood scattered on the 
uh, Holy of Holies. And then the high priest would pray over the second goat. And they would send that goat off into the wilderness, taking away the sins of Israel once a year. Jesus fulfilled the type of both goats. He was both the blood that was shed, and he was also the goat that took away the sins of Israel. The type of blood being sacrificed, the action of sacrificing it. This action of atonement that's found in Leviticus 17, where blood would actually cover the sins in the Old Testament. Here, it is a more efficacious sacrifice where it doesn't only cover, but it removes those sins. He satisfies the type of the kinsman redeemer, where a relative would redeem property of some sort. Jesus substitutes himself for the sinner and becomes his redeemer. And he can do so because he is in the family of mankind, having been born by a virgin. And he satisfies the type of the red heifer, which is a type of purification. Jesus, as we'll look at next week, has purified not only those who believe, not only things on this earth, but things in heaven as well. Jesus' blood is able to purify. Now, there are many more types. We don't really have the time to get into them tonight because we also want to look at what exactly was accomplished by the cross. And I've got a lot more of these. I've got 15 listed, but once again, it can't be an exhaustive list. We don't have enough time. In fact, we would probably have to go over just about all of Scripture to see just all of what Christ's work on the cross has accomplished. But we start first with satisfaction. The full equivalent for the wrong that has been done in man's rebellion against God, which is called sin. Jesus fully satisfied the righteous law of God. This answered all of God's demands on the sinner. So there is not one demand left on the sinner that separates him from God, so long as he enters in through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is able to satisfy this. Only Jesus himself is not sinful, and so can be a sacrifice for sin and fully satisfy God. Jesus has also redeemed us on the cross. He paid the penalty, the price for our sin, and so believers have been purchased from the slave market of sin. This has many ramifications. We are redeemed from the penalty of the law. This was specifically for Jewish believers who were under the law. There is now no possibility of a Jew satisfying any part of the Mosaic law except through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. To attempt to approach God through the Mosaic Law apart from Christ would be a rejection of the completion of Christ's work on the cross and would not save and would not sanctify, but would rather condemn. If one tries even to be sanctified through the law instead of through Christ and through faith, Paul says they have fallen from grace 
that they were saved through faith, and yet somehow they think they are sanctified through works. Jesus Christ's redemption on the cross has made it possible for us to approach God, not through the law, but through the Son. It removed the burden of the law from Israel. It removed both Jews and Gentiles from the power of sin, where the unredeemed, the one who has not had Jesus' blood applied to him and his sins, he has no power at all to overcome sin. Anything he does, because he does not do so by the power of God working through him, only heaps up as filthy wrecks. He has no power to do anything that is not sinful because all things done apart from God are sinful. This frees the believer from the power of Satan as well. Where Satan was a master over us before we were set free in Christ. Now he is no longer a master. If one submits himself to Satan, then it is by his own will not because he belongs to Satan, as one who has not been redeemed does. This also redeems us to a future resurrection. It has paid the price, not just to rescue us, but to bring us fully into God's satisfied plan for us. Because Christ redeemed us, we will be resurrected on the last day. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was also propitious. I like to think of this as a sponge for wrath. You see, God, in his wrath, had to be appeased. He is a righteous, a just, and a holy God, and he cannot wink at sin. He cannot allow sin to go on. He cannot allow it not to be punished. But being a loving and merciful God, he died in our stead and absorbed the wrath himself. So that Jesus, having fully absorbed that wrath of God, there is no need for any man, woman, or child to ever experience that wrath of God, because Jesus has fully satisfied it. He has reconciled the world to God. Reconciliation speaks of a change of relationship from enmity to friendship, where the world is unsavable apart from the sacrifice Jesus on the cross has made the world savable. That once again, through the application of the blood to the believer, he applies this salvation to himself and enters into the family of God because Jesus has made that relationship possible. Jesus is also the ransom for sinners. This has been taught incorrectly in historical theology, that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan on the cross. This is not true. God owes Satan nothing. Nothing was paid to Satan. Jesus' ransom on the cross, spoken of in 1 Timothy 2.6, was a ransom to the holy law of God. He fully paid the price for sin, and that price was his blood. He satisfied the holiness of God in this ransom. 
it is also proof of God's love for sinners. Because Jesus died for a world that was in sin, not a world that was already redeemed. As Romans 5.8 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, using the Greek term cosmos, which almost becomes a technical term for the world system that is opposed to God. God sent his son to die for that world system that is opposed to him so that he could reconcile them, so that they could be brought into a relationship with him. So the proof of God's love for sinners is found at the cross as well. On the cross, Jesus judged the sin nature. The sin nature is not immediately removed from the believer. It is not removed until we are either raptured or resurrected. At that point, when we are perfected, when we are face-to-face with Christ, the sin nature will be shed and we will be removed from the presence of sin. But the sin nature, nonetheless, has already been judged and it has been condemned. Just as Noah, getting on the, on the ark, condemned the world because he had entered through salvation and salvation was only available through God's means of saving him. So salvation is only available through Christ, and the rest is condemned. The sin nature has been condemned by Jesus' death on the cross. It no longer has power over us unless we choose to submit to the flesh. And it is the end of the law of Moses. Jesus Christ is the only one who could satisfy it. Believers, neither Jews nor Gentiles, are under the law of Moses. This does not mean that the things of the law of Moses cannot be done. One can be circumcised if they would like. Any of the festivals may be kept. But so long as one does not believe that they are either saved or sanctified by doing so. In that case, it actually works against you. Because once again, you would be trying to do things by the flesh and not by the spirit. The spirit will help you do what is the will of God. If you are trying to do something contrary to the will of God, the spirit is not there to help. The spirit will not help you go against God to receive salvation or sanctification by any other means besides Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. His death on the cross is also the basis for continual cleansing. A believer, especially since he is not removed from the sin nature, will continue after his salvation to sin. Just as Israel, after their salvation from from Egypt, continued to sin, and they needed this Mosaic law and the temple system in order to cover their sins, our sins are continually cleansed and satisfied by the blood of Christ. The same blood that cleanses us, bringing us into the family of God, also cleanses us from our sins that we commit after we are in the family of God and keeps us in fellowship with God. This is the basis for removal of pre-cross sins as well. 
No animal at any time ever sacrificed for sin, ever removed sin. It covered it so that the final removal might take place when the true and only perfect sacrifice was made. So that all of the sins of Israel, all of the sins of Moses, of Noah, of Adam, of Abel, every sin that was ever committed that was offered up to God by a sacrifice of an animal was finally paid for at the cross. You might say they covered it with credit and Jesus finally came and paid the credit card bill. Jesus on the cross completed the judgment of Satan and his hosts. This was one of the very first prophecies in scripture, Genesis 3.15, that Jesus, or the seed of the woman, would step on the head of the serpent. Satan lost the battle that day. That is why he tried so fervently to keep Jesus from the cross. But as we learn from Ezekiel 28, Satan in his pride has become a fool. His wisdom from below does not allow him to see that he has already lost and he is going to keep on fighting. But there is no possible way for him to win. There never was a possible way for him to reach his goal of placing his throne above the throne of God or of coming anywhere near it. But he tried to continue to win over the hearts of men so that he would maintain control of creation, and he will, until Jesus comes and sets us free at his return, when he casts Satan into the lake of fire at the end of his messianic kingdom, which will last a thousand years before the eternal state. At that point, everything that was completed at the cross will be realized. We will see that Satan never had a hope in the world. The basis of the cross, God was able to defer judgment. Romans 2, 4 through 5 tells us that this deferred judgment was both for the past and for the future. God was able to defer judgment, to not immediately bring judgment down because of Christ's future payment for sins. And now he is able to spare the world for what is now 2,000 years since the cross on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. The reason why everything wasn't consumed in flames the moment he died was because his blood paid for God's deferral so that he could offer grace to mankind. Time is a gift of grace. So when we look around the world and wonder why God hasn't ended it all yet, in fact, when we even get frustrated with God for not having ended it all yet because we're safe, we know where we're going, we remember that he hasn't ended it all yet because of his work on the cross and that it is good not just for our salvation but for those who have not yet been saved. And the moment grace ends, well, the moment he comes, grace ends. 
that is something we look forward to, but it is also going to be a sad day for those who have not gotten on the Ark of the Cross. This is also the grounds for peace in three areas. Peace between God and man. In the reconciliation, our relationships have been restored. In fact, 1 John, as we're studying in our Sunday service, tells us just how close that relationship has been brought because of this peace that has been brought by the cross. It is the basis of peace between Jews and Gentiles. You see that begin to take place pretty soon after the resurrection and ascension in, I believe it's Acts 10, Acts 11, where Peter actually goes in and fellowships with Jews or with Gentiles in Cornelius' house, something that would have made him unclean. He realizes that Jesus has made even the Gentiles clean. They no longer have to access him through the Mosaic law. They have access to him as Gentiles. God has cleansed them. This is the basis for peace between Jews and Gentiles, as Paul explains more in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. This is also the basis for peace in the universe, which is still yet future, where Jesus will restore all things. He's not going to do a new work. The work has already been completed on the cross, but he is going to bring to full realization all that he has done, all that he has satisfied on the cross. Israel at this point is nationally in unbelief. It was at that day as well. And it will continue in unbelief until nearly the end of the tribulation period. But Jesus has already made provision for their national conversion. In fact, this was prophesied all the way back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, that he would redeem them from the nations. He would bring them back to the land. They would turn to him, and they would serve him. The only way to serve him is to receive him as the Messiah and as the full satisfaction for sin. And this is the basis for the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. As he said in the upper room, this is the blood of the covenant. Speaking of the new covenant, that covenant which will guide our relationships with God in the messianic kingdom and even in the eternal state. Without Christ suffering what he did on the cross, there is no basis for the kingdom which he offered them. Had he not, or had the kingdom not been rejected by Israel, he still would have had to die. He still would have had to satisfy all of these things that we have just looked through. None of these would have been satisfied by Jesus bringing in the kingdom. He could not even bring in the kingdom without offering the final sacrifice for sin. And so perhaps if he had not been rejected by Israel, they would have received him as their king and Rome would have crucified them, him themselves for insurrection, just as he was not found guilty of that they tried to bring a charge against him in his civil trial. He would have been resurrected just the same and immediately destroyed the Roman government and established on this earth his messianic kingdom. The offer to Israel of a messianic kingdom was a real offer. And the rejection 
of Jesus as the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom was just as real of a rejection, but it will be offered again at that time because of his work on the cross. He is able to establish his kingdom on this earth. Our final section is the confirmation of the death of Christ. Even in our content of faith that we believe for salvation in this dispensation, in this set of progressive revelation. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 tells us we believe these three things. That is part of the gospel message. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The burial is a confirmation that the death took place. Just as 1 Corinthians 15, 5 up through, I think, even almost verse 20, the confirmation of the resurrection is given in evidence of all the people that witnessed him in his resurrection life. The fact that Jesus died and the fact that Jesus resurrected are the two facts that give us any ability to receive salvation and live new lives based on salvation and to be brought into glorification based on salvation offered by his blood. And so he had to die. There were a few signs that accompanied this death. The first one, which is not spoken of, interestingly enough, in any rabbinic writings, seems they were very embarrassed about this event, was that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, this was a veil that was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and over four inches wide, or thick. It was not torn from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, representing God himself having torn it. This separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And now the Ark of the Covenant was not present there because it had been stolen in the Babylonian captivity but there was still a stone there that they used in its place. Access to the very throne room of God was brought by the death of Christ, and not until that death was satisfied was that made. So in this tearing of the veil, it was access to God apart from the Mosaic system. There was an earthquake that shook the land, and once again our friend I want to say phlegm, phlegm of trolleys, it's in our notes, up in Asia Minor, Turkey, said that accompanying this darkness of the sun was a great earthquake that shook them all the way up there in the northern part of Turkey. So we see that even the creation was affected by this death of Christ. Romans 8 Past verse 20 gives us this same impression that the very creation groans and aches for the full redemption. It began to groan and quake at that time when redemption began. Also, very interestingly enough, Matthew in verse, chapter 27, verses 53 to 54, 5, tells us that many bodies of believers were resurrected when Christ died. By his death, we have life. The effects of this were so great that many who were in the grave, who were in tombs, sprung to life. 
His death provided life. We see foreshadows of the throwing off fully of the curse. By the curse, man would die. By the death of Christ, man would live. There are two more that are very interesting. They don't make it into biblical records, so they may or may not have been true. But they are interesting because they come from rabbinic writings. And they date when these events began to occur, and they dated as 40 years before the destruction of the temple. 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 30 AD, more than two, but these two I found the best evidence for, two things began to occur. First, the western light in the western part of the temple, which was the center light of the menorah, went out. They would light it again, and it would go out again. They could not keep it lit. In their tradition, this central lamp indicated the presence of God. Just like in the days of Ezekiel, where the Shekinah glory left the temple, so for them, when Christ was dead and resurrected and went back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, the presence of God was no longer present in the temple. And the, they could not keep the Western light lit. There's also the legend of Azazel. Azazel was the Hebrew word for removal. And it became the name for the second goat in the Yom Kippur uh, offering, where the first goat would be sacrificed, and then the second goat would take the sins of Israel and drive them into the wilderness, indicating forgiveness for the national sins of Israel based on the sacrifice of the first goat. After AD 30, they continued to offer sacrifices in the temple. They used to take a piece of cloth that was scarlet red, based on the scripture that says, your sins are like scarlet, but I will wash them white as wool. They would take this scarlet cloth, cut it in two, tie one piece to Azazel and cast him into the wilderness, and they would tie the other piece to the doorpost of the temple. And they had people out there watching Azazel to make sure he made it to the wilderness and to even see Azazel's uh, cloth scarlet piece. But they had the one in the temple as well to watch. And it, according to their legend, when he reached the wilderness, this scarlet cord would turn white, indicating to them that God had taken away the sins of Israel. In AD 30, they wrote, apart from scripture, which honestly I like that it's apart from scripture, because they wrote this of their own accord, those who did not believe in Christ. In AD 30, the scarlet cord stopped turning white. God no longer covered the sins of Israel based on animal sacrifice, only on the basis of the final sacrifice Jesus Christ. So 40 years before the temple was destroyed, Azazel's scarlet cord stopped turning white. God stopped receiving animal sacrifices 
in lieu of his son. The confirmation of his death and burial came first in piercing his side. The chief priests and the, and the Pharisees wanted Jesus off the cross to bury him before the beginning of the Sabbath. They had to. From Deuteronomy 23, they are not allowed to keep a body hanging on a tree during the Sabbath. They had to have him buried. And it's about 3 p.m. And the Sabbath would begin at about 6 p.m. Could even start earlier than that because the Jewish day begins anew as soon as three stars are visible in the night sky. So as soon as three stars are visible, the Sabbath begins. And if Jesus is not buried, they are in contradiction of the law of Moses and they have broken the Sabbath. So these Pharisees and chief priests who are Sadducees go to Pilate and ask Pilate to have Jesus killed faster on the cross. So he sends Romans to go and break his legs. He breaks first the legs of the criminals, and then when he gets to Jesus, he realizes Jesus is already dead. So he does not break the bones of Jesus. The Passover lamb could not have a single bone in his body broken. Instead, he takes a spear and he pierces the side of Jesus. And out of Jesus' side comes blood mixed with water. Now this has theological uh, purpose as well. But we also see a scientific fact in here. Jesus did die by asphyxiation. His lungs were full of water, and his heart had burst in his chest. And when they pierced him, the blood mixed with water gushed out. This, both to the Romans and to our modern scientists, is proof positive that Jesus did, in fact, die on the cross. He did not swoon. He was not an apparition. This occurred. This human flesh died. Now, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, whom we haven't met yet, but we've seen the circles he runs in, he is a counselor of Israel, which means he is part of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. He was not present for Jesus' trial and conviction during the night, and it says that he was opposed to the conviction as well. This perhaps means that in the daytime hours when they redid the trial to try to give it a semblance of legality, that Joseph of Arimathea may at that time have spoken up and said he was not in favor. He is joined by his friend Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, part, once again, of the Sanhedrin. It says that these two men were secret followers of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom. He was part of the remnant of Israel. He was a believer in the Messiah. And though they had been secret believers before, at this point they gained boldness, and they went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus so that they could have him buried. Joseph of Arimathea was from a very well-to-do family, and he had a tomb that had just been freshly carved in the garden, 
in the garden tomb near where Jesus had been crucified. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are granted the body from the cross. None of the women that came to the cross, four of them in total, were there for the preparation and burial. John was not present there. None of Jesus' friends were there. But these two members of the Sanhedrin, one a Pharisee, one a Sadducee, prepared and buried the body of Christ. Nicodemus brought the spices, the aloes, and the myrrh in order to prepare Christ's body minimally for burial. From a distance, we see that some of these women that came with Jesus were watching. They were watching specifically to see where he was buried in order that they might come two days later and finish the burial, embalming him and wrapping him in burial cloths. This, once again, was a very rushed burial. They were going to come again two days later, Sunday morning, on the third day, and finish the burial after the Sabbath was over. We'll see what happens next week. I'll leave you in suspense. I'm sure none of you know. <laughs> now, the very last thing that we see tonight is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very paranoid because in Matthew 12, Jesus had told them that the last sign he would give them would be that he, like Jonah, would be in the uh, heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That he, just like Jonah, would be resurrected. And so they went to Pilate and told him, this is a big problem. If his followers come and steal his body, they might say that Jesus has given that last proof to his messiahship. They might create a hoax by which Israel will be led astray. So they say the, the second wrong might be worse than the first, indicating perhaps that they understood the wrong that they had done in sending him to his death. So they had the Romans seal the tomb. They would have sealed it in an X pattern with a seal on the ropes and a seal on the stone itself. And anyone breaking or caught breaking this seal would be executed under Roman law. What they didn't realize was they made it impossible for there to be any doubt of the resurrection because they made it impossible for any hoax to take place. They made it impossible that his disciples could have gone in and stolen the body so that only the work of God could resurrect Jesus and that those who saw it, those who saw the proof of Jesus resurrected could not deny that it was a work of God unless they chose willingly to disbelieve. Next week, Messiah resurrected and the Messiah ascended to heaven. You can read Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 through 21, and if you have time, Acts. And if you're really ambitious, the whole book of Hebrews. A homework, lessons 182 through 201. Next week is our last session. I'll go back to that for you, sure. Next week is our last session. So we will not be meeting on the 27th. 
just the 20th. Also, this uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 6 p.m. is our fall conference where Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who did all the research for this course, are going, is going to come and speak to us about a topic called Israelology, where he's going to tell us what the Bible teaches us about Israel past, Israel present, and Israel future. So I encourage you to come to that. You'll also be speaking at our morning service on Sunday. Um, if you are able, if you have a computer, please register online so we can make you a fancy name tag. And if you don't have a computer, let Erin know, and she can make you a name tag. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Dear Father, we are so thankful for the death of your son. Though we are shocked by the brutality of man, we are shocked by the penalty of sin and just what it cost for you to make a full atonement for it. We are nonetheless so thankful that Jesus has undergone this penalty in order to restore our relationship with you and to bring us into such close and intimate fellowship with you that we can even be called sons of God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.